for more an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Gloss. World traveler and slightly cocktail obsessed, but in a good way, J.M. Hirsch on the podcast today. J.M. is the editorial director for Milk Street, but he's also an author. He wrote Shake, Strain, Done, and Pour Me Another. That's where the cocktail obsession comes in. He talks about splitting his childhood between the U.S. and Europe, taking a couple left turns with education before eventually landing a job at the Associated Press. He covered crime stories for a really long time before eventually getting into food and drink, and he says that's where the passion really took off. He talks about his journey getting to Milk Street, his philosophy in being an editorial director, and traveling the globe, what he's learned from cultures all over the world. He also talks about why it's important to never stop changing. Here's Jay Hirsch. My number one burning question for you, right out of the gates, what does JM stand for? (laughs) You know, when I was young and clever, uh, I I used to say just me, Um, but it actually stands for Jason Matthew. (laughs) Jason Matthew. Yes. I was yes. Ge- I was going to guess know, John Michael. Oh, no, that would have been good too. No, you know, it was this weird affectation I took on when I was young and again mm-hmm. eager and and I thought that it was better if people not know my name. And and I don't know why I thought this, you know, again I was young and, and silly. And and so it kind of stuck and I've had it ever since. So So growing <laughs> up people called you Jason. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then at some point you changed it to JM. I love that. And yes, yes. I, I actually like the, the just me. When I created my little company for myself, it's my name. That's me, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing, yeah. not creative whatsoever. Just me. <laughs> but I exactly. Like that. It's perfect. I like that. Okay. <laughs> JM, you are the editorial director currently for Milk Street Magazine. Uh, we're going to talk about your journey to Milk Street because it's been an interesting mm-hmm. one. But you're also the author of two books, Pour Me Another and Shake, Strain, Done, all about cocktails. All about cocktails. Uh, so combined some 500 cocktail recipes. I, I'm done. I have nothing left to say about cocktails <laughs> at this point. <laughs> the new one, Pour Me Another, comes out in October. And you know what? I'm, I'm good. I, I've got no cocktails left in me at this point. You. Stick a fork in me. <laughs> Done. Um, and if, if people follow your IG, you are all about cocktails. You're you're kind of obsessed. I am. I am kind of obsessed. I got to say, at the end of the day, I like a good cocktail and preferably out on the dock, but I'll take it wherever I can get it. And and I'm, I don't claim to be a good photographer, but, you know, you get the sunset just right. You get the perfect cocktail, good glassware, and it just lights up and it makes you puts you in a happy place. So I'm I'm a bit of a hoe for glass like glassware, wine glasses, (laughs) coupe glasses, martini Mm -hmm. glasses, the good whiskey glasses. I mean, I just give me a good glass any day and I'm a happy girl. I have a glassware problem. And, and so I have uh, all open shelving in the kitchen and, and it's in front of windows. And Mm -hmm. so there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of glasses in front of these windows. And, and my husband created a new rule that I can only bring in new pieces if I get rid of old pieces. (laughs) And it's, it's that much of a problem. So I understand. Yeah, my <laughs> husband has the similar a similar rule. But I'm like, honey, we need and you know what is amazing for Christmas? He gave me a set of coupe glasses, these beautiful coupe glasses. And I was just like, I think we've hit a new 
milestone in our relationship that you're giving me glasses. This is amazing. <laughs> so I love yep. That. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can already tell we're going to be friends. So I, I love this. Um, all right. Let's start from the beginning. Um, oh, actually, quick okay. question. In your IG videos, is that your kitchen? That is my kitchen. Yes. It's stunning. Yep. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Also... It's been renovated like three times. Nice. Because you know? <laughs> I'm also a hoe yeah. for nice kitchens too. I'm like, I just love a beautiful kitchen. Um, yeah. Check out my Pinterest. Um, okay. So let's start from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Uh, you know, that's one of the hardest questions for me to answer. Yeah. I don't really know where I'm from. I was born in Massachusetts. And, but my family moved overseas when I was young and I lived overseas and then we came home for high school. I did high school in New Hampshire and then I went back overseas uh, for my education mm -hmm. and then I came back and, and kind of settled here and, and I, I just happened to end up in New Hampshire long term. That wasn't the plan. Yeah. You split childhood, right? I mean, you were, you were here, there, here, there, so... Yeah, we lived in Germany. My dad was in uh, in a joint operation with Bosch. And so his company sent him over and, and we were there for a while. And then I came home for, like I say, for high school in New Hampshire. And then uh, I went back overseas. I went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and for my master's. And then I moved to Cape Town uh, for my PhD. And then I realized I didn't enjoy teaching. And so that wasn't a great use of my time. So I came home. <laughs> <laughs> nice so a phd in philosophy isn't all that useful if you're not going to teach so i think you're doing okay <laughs> um so splitting splitting childhood what was that like i mean did you have a favorite were, were you excited to come back for high school uh you know i wasn't i wasn't i mean i loved living in europe and you know every literally every weekend my parents would just point the car in a new direction and we'd go explore someplace and and it was wonderful and it, it was a great opportunity to see the world and understand the world and as well as best as you know a 12 year old can understand anything but to you know to get a sense and appreciation for the complexity and the similarities of everybody everywhere and so I, I absolutely loved it. I think though I was probably ready to come home and you know for high school and and then I very quickly realized no actually I belong back back overseas and and after high school I, I fled the country again and and no regrets about that. That was probably the best thing I ever did in my life. Mm, I like that. Was food important in your family growing up? Oh God, yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, too much so. You know, we've all we've all battled our weight our whole lives. And, you know, but we were, you know, we were that, you know, cliche of thinking about, you know, not just your next meal, but your next five meals. Yeah. And yes. Yes, honey. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we were also very like weird, you know, especially, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you know people were not, you know, the, the typical, you know, mom was not cooking Thai food and, and Spanikopita unless you were Greek or Thai. And, but my mother was doing these things. And, and so we had very uh, eccentric for the time uh, tastes and, and it was wonderful. I mean, and then of course, you know, living in Europe, we, we ate everything yes. uh, not tied down. And so, uh, so yes, food was exceedingly important. And sometimes it was very, you know, fancy in terms of like doing Thai cooking in the eighties. And, and sometimes it was really trashy. And my favorite, like one of my favorite 
awful, awful memories that my family and I used to do. We used to go to TCBY. Remember those? Yes. Yeah. We used to get one of their frozen yogurt cakes and split it three ways. Brilliant. (laughs) Because I'm an only child. (laughs) And and we would just devour that sucker. Oh, man, it was good. (laughs) Trashy, but fun. Not trashy. (laughs) I love that. I would I would come home from school. I'm from South Carolina and make fried bologna sandwiches maybe like every day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I got really good I at fried it. bologna sandwiches. <laughs> White bread, mayonnaise, not Miracle Whip because gross, and fried bologna mm-hmm. where it's a little burnt around the edges. Wow. That's heaven right there. And I mean, I, <laughs> that's trashy too, but I love a good fried bologna sandwich. You know, I don't think I've ever had one, but my after school equivalent of that when I lived in Germany was I would come home from school and my mother would have bought Kalb's Liebewurst, which is calves liverwurst. And it's this like liver pate. I mean, oh my God, it's so good. So rich and fatty as hell. Oh. It was so good. And I would slather that so thick on a piece of bread, white bread. And then I would have, this is the disgusting part, I would have a massive mug of chocolate milk. Oh, man. Liverwurst and chocolate oh milk. My I mean, it was perfect. You know what? I would still kill for that now. Uh, okay, wait. Was the chocolate milk pre-made chocolate milk or did you make the chocolate milk, milk and chocolate syrup? Oh, I made it. Mm-hmm. I made it. with the. I think I actually had the powder now that I think about it. Um, boy, I haven't had that in a long time. But that Same. Was good. <laughs> Same, but I could go for a, a tall glass of like ice cold chocolate milk right now. But but that's mm. made. I make it, not the pre made stuff, because I don't think that's any. Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Exactly, it's never rich enough. Never. So you went to school in Scotland, um, and I read yes. this actually did have a big impact on you, right? Going to school in Edinburgh. It did. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, there I was, what, 18, 19, Mm -hmm. and and yes, I had lived overseas before, but never on my own. And all of a sudden, and this is, of course, before smartphones and before cell phones, you know, and and all of a sudden, I'm just in another country trying to figure my crap out. And, and, you know, and it was the best thing I could have done, because it really brought me out of whatever shell I was in and, and really forced me to figure out who I was. Um, I mean, that's always a journey, but, (laughs) but you know, it certainly moved, moved the needle a bit. And, and, and I realized I loved travel. I loved exploring the world and, and I just loved being someplace other, you know, I, I think we forget that pushing ourselves outside of where we are where we're used to is so good for us at mm-hmm. just such a visceral level. I mean, even just, and it doesn't have to be overseas. It can be just going to see a new town, you know, one state over or something. Uh, but pushing yourself out of what you know and forcing yourself to experience something and make sense of something, it's so good for you. And, and it forces you to grow and, and to to understand yourself better and understand other people. Uh, it was, it was hands down probably the best thing I ever did. Hmm. And, and it, and it, it, and it set me on a course that it's been weird and, and haphazard at times, but it set me on a course that, you know, just changed the course of my life. So uh, I loved it. Well, it's, it's scary, right? And it feels super uncomfortable when you mm-hmm. are forcing yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, 
Right. A lot of us tend to just like freeze and, and just say, I want to go hide in the corner, but cause it's, it's uncomfortable. It is. And the good thing though, about being, you know, someplace where you're not familiar, you don't know anybody is you really don't have a choice to go hide in the corner. You know, I mean, you're either going to sink or swim essentially. Mm -hmm. And, and I just had to figure myself out and I didn't always do it perfectly, but you know, you learn, you learn a lot. And, and uh, yeah, I, that is, boy, the number one thing I can tell people, you know, especially kids going off to college now, get out, get, put yourself someplace where you're not familiar Mm -hmm. and sort it out. And you're going to grow so much. You're going to learn so much. You'll meet some of the best friends of your life. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I moved to Vegas at 16 with my family, not just me from from South Carolina. Um, And yeah, I think that was the best thing that ever happened to me getting out of this small town of, you know, in South Carolina and moving to Las Vegas at 16 years old. That has to have been intense. (laughs) Super intense. And I had this like complete huge Southern accent too. So walking around, you know, my, Hey y'all. And everyone's like, who is this alien? Yeah. So I, yeah, I agree. It is scary, but you do learn a lot about yourself and, and you're forced to adapt. Yes, exactly. Which is something, you know, in our day-to-day life, we often don't have to do, you know, we get comfortable where we are. We get comfortable doing what we do with the people we know, Mm -hmm. and you don't have to adapt as much. And, and that, adaptation boy that makes you who you are and and helps you figure out who you want to be agreed agreed did you go to school for uh do you said philosophy mm, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was supposed to go to law school after that and then i actually applied and got in for a couple places and and something in me just couldn't do it i just i, I couldn't i don't know why i just couldn't bring myself to actually do it i deferred and I decided to pursue the PhD and, and, you know, uh, again, it, it, part of it too, I was, I was supposed to go to, uh, speaking about stupid decisions, I was supposed to go to, <laughs> to the University of Melbourne for my PhD. And I, I was really torn because at the time uh, it's uh, during the first free elections in South Africa. And it's when Mandela got elected and I was watching this whole thing. And of course, the UK was watching it very closely. And and so I was just fascinated by it. I was reading everything I could and just completely on a whim, I applied to the University of Cape Town. Now, University of Melbourne, one of the top universities in the field of philosophy that I was studying, top in the world. <laughs> University of Cape Town, not so much, but... <laughs> No, not quite. And but I wanted an adventure. And and so I was really torn. And I, I came home for about a month and to New Hampshire. And I kept talking to my parents. They're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And finally, I said, all right, I'm going to do what I, I'm supposed to do, which is go to the University of Melbourne. So I fill out all the forms and I brought it over to the post office. And I, I handed the letter to the postmaster. And I walked out. I sat down in my car. I said, nope, that was the wrong decision. And I walked back in and I knew that, you know, they're not supposed to give you back mail once you give it to them. And, and so I knew that. And, and I walk up to him and I said, please. And I just, I thought, well, all right, if he doesn't give it back to me, then, you know, this is, this is the decision I've made and this is what's going to happen. But he, he gave it back to me. Wow. And I tore it up and I ended up moving to Cape Town like a couple months later. No way. And yeah. And it was, again, it wasn't probably a big part of the reason I didn't 
didn't go on in academia, but uh, it was a great adventure and a great experience. Again, talk about being in over your head. Um, I, I landed in, in Johannesburg on the 20th anniversary of the Soweto riots, the student riots. Oh my God. And, you know, they're, they're kind of going at it again for old time's sake, you know, as part of the, you know, recognizing it. And, and, and I, again, this is before you, you know, smartphones and everything. And I had made a reservation at a hotel out of this, you know, travel guide or whatever. And, you know, the taxi driver picked me up at the airport, tripped me there. And he said, are you sure this is where you want to go? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what I'm, I know what I'm doing. I've been all over. And he takes me up and it was obviously um, <clears throat> a place where you rent by the hour. And so <laughs> he said, are you sure you want to go in there? And I said, mm, actually, no, not really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so he took me to a different hotel where I promptly collapsed onto the bed and, and slept for 24 hours and realized how in over my head I really was. But again, best thing you could do. Right. Because what are, I mean, what are your options? What are you going to do? You can't. Yeah, you exactly. Home. Right. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. And and so I just had to figure myself out and get down to Cape Town. I took an overnight train and uh, got down to Cape Town and and started a new life down there. And it was kind of crazy, frankly. <laughs> was there a moment for you, though, that you said, this isn't for me, like pursuing? Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it was, again, I, I say that maybe if I'd gone to Melbourne, I would have stayed in, stayed in academia, mm -hmm. but it was a difficult teaching environment. The University of Cape Town at the time was one of the few really, truly integrated universities in South Africa. And, and you literally had kids coming into class from the townships, you know, whose family members were shot the day before or, you know, couldn't afford you know, even the basic necessities for school or, or for day-to-day -day life. And it made it, you know, not that my challenge were anything compared to what these kids were going through, but it made it a challenging teaching environment. And and I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't really care for it. And uh, I, I think I wasn't able to focus on what I wanted to focus on uh, in, in terms of academia. And, and so I quickly kind of pivoted to writing and which had always been a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started working with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the author, J.M. Kutzia. Mm -mm. And he, he's, he's a best-selling author and he's won all sorts of awards. He's a brilliant writer. And, and he quickly told me what he thought of my writing, uh, which was yet another wake-up call and, uh, <laughs> and, and well-deserved at the time. And, and so, but I worked with him for about a year and then eventually came home and said, well, this is kind of silly. I'm not, I'm not really doing anything or accomplishing anything here. So I decided to come home and, and, and is, figure out what to do with my life. Well, is that when you joined the Associated Press? Roughly. Yeah. I came home and I, I did a zine for a while. I don't remember those, uh, the, the self-published little magazines that everybody was doing back in the early mid nineties. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I did one of those for a while and for my six months or something. And then, uh, I decided I need to actually get serious about doing something with my life. And <clears throat> I was on the infancy of the internet at the time, some chat room, and and some guy who worked at the Associated Press office here in New Hampshire was giving advice to these two uh, women who were in college and were thinking about getting into journalism. And he said, yeah, you, you just come in and you take an application test, a writing test. And, you know, we'll, he was explaining the whole process of how you apply to the AP. And, you know, again, in my 
arrogance and conceit that only like a 22 year old, 23 year old can do. I was like, I can do that. <laughs> and having zero journalism experience. And, uh, and so I went in and I took the test and I did well on it, except for the sports writing section, which I bombed and which I kind of expected since I know nothing about sports. Yeah. And, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they actually offered me a job. And they told me that one of the reasons they offered me the job is because I have an, an analytical background from philosophy, uh, but also because I didn't have a journalism degree. They wanted somebody a little bit more outside the box. Wow. And so, yeah. And that was, again, a tough learning curve. You know, it was another one of those things where, wow, you know, over my head really fast. I mean, <clears throat> I think within a week I was interviewing Dan Quayle. Uh, God, I haven't thought about him in a long time. And <clears throat> yeah, and and then, you know, very quickly on to crime and punishment and all sorts of other things. And and I had a lot to learn. And uh, I, I have to say, much like going to Scotland, joining the AP was probably the best thing I ever did for my writing career mm. because, you know, I say that editing at the AP draws blood, especially when you're young. And they, you know, nobody cares about your feelings. They care about getting no. the story right and accurate, you know? <laughs> and yes. so they would butcher my writing. And and that was the best experience I've ever had. You mm -hmm. know, it took me probably four or five years before I could write a national story that would go out without editing or very minimal editing. And and that was such a sense of accomplishment after, you know, three, four, five years to be able to do that. But it was the best training ground. You know, they beat the crap out of me in terms of my writing. And that's the only way to learn. If people just tell you how wonderful you are, you know, I it's mean, not, not going to teach you anything. Agreed. I worked in a newsroom for 19 years. And I remember um, mm. one of the anchors there when I first got hired, and I'm 22 years old, and he's reading my yep. stuff. And he's highlighting things on the computer and he's like this is a no shit statement you already said this you've repeated <laughs> yourself here and he took you know a 45 second story that I was going to read on tv down to 15 seconds right. and he's like I need more I need more meat go yep yep and I was like yeah where's the guy that's telling me this was good like where I need someone that to pat me <laughs> pat me on the hiney and tell me I'm special right but exactly. yeah exactly exactly but you're not going to learn that way you're not no exactly if, if, if you just turn things in and they tell you that you're great then you're just going to keep doing the same stuff and yeah. and that was they were brutal and and it was exactly what i needed so well there's I, standards I, too I, right it's just they're, they're, right they have a standard to uphold yeah yeah exactly and and you you know you're you're doing a job you're communicating information and you have to do it in a way that makes sense and that is accurate and fair and and clear and easily understood and that's not easy right. uh, you think it is but then when you have to actually do it and one of, one of the first uh stories that i had to deal with after dan quill was <laughs> um the deregulation of the electric power industry in new england and I still can't tell you what the heck it means and or how it happened or whatever. But I had to write stories about it all the time. And and that's why I always, as a as now an editor, I only hire journalists. I don't hire food writers, so to speak. Um, because a real journalist can write about anything. Yes. And do it convincingly yes. and with authority. And and so if I could write about the electric the deregulation of the electric power industry in New England and and inform people about what that meant, which I still don't understand what it means. 
then anybody can write about food as long as they put themselves into it. A hundred percent. I remember going to like a water irrigation board meeting, you know, in <laughs> in the middle of nowhere and coming back and, yep. and writing up this story. And, and someone's like, hey, this line about um, this clause, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, they just said it in the meeting. So I put it in my story. <laughs> And they're like, yep. well, if you don't know what it means, the viewer's right. not going to know what it means. So you have to break it right. down and you have to ask, right? That's another thing I think. Exactly. Journalism 101, if you don't know, ask. Yeah. Oh my God, ask. Like, how? Yep. You know, yeah. I think, I think, you know, I was just in Hungary a couple of weeks ago and I had hired a fixer who was a very young journalist. And, and I saw very quickly what, what the hangup of young journalists is that they don't like to ask those questions because they don't want to appear like they don't know what they're Look stupid. talking about or don't yeah. know something. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And no, that's actually your job as a journalist is to sound stupid when you're asking these mm -hmm. questions, you know, mm -hmm. explain it to me. And because even if I understand it, I want to understand what you understand. Right. You know, and so and that's a hard one because you you do set yourself up as, you know, sounding stupid and but that's your job. And, and so, uh, yeah, you, know, you have to ask those obvious questions sometimes right. and the not so obvious ones. I mean, I think two two words that I said quite often in interviews was, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Wait, what? What was that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. But there is this fear of looking stupid. But you have to get past that. Yeah. Because again, if, if you're going to yeah. break something down for a viewer or a reader, exactly, you have to know exactly all the little ins and outs of it. So I read that you at the AP, you were covering crime. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. And I had to like read it over again. I'm like, <laughs> wait, you work for a food, you're the, you're the editorial director of this food, but you do cocktails, you covered crime for like a long time. I did, yeah. So I very quickly got onto the uh, juvenile crime beat uh, at AP, wow. and uh, you know I used to hang out with heroin addicts and, and gangs and stuff, and, uh, and you know <laughs> the fun stuff. And um, yeah, it was it was some intense stuff. I, I was one of our lead reporters on the Catholic Church stuff for a while, and oh, wow. yeah, I mean that. You know, um, which unfortunately involved the high school I had gone to here in the U.S. Oh, and wow. um, so there was a lot, you know, it was it was an intense period. And but my heart, as you know, we say food was important to me mm -hmm. and my heart was kind of in food. And I was at the right time, right place, kind of just doofusy, you know, you know, <laughs> kind of bumbling my way along. But. It, you know, it's true because at the time that I was interested in food uh, and, and considering like, wow, maybe I could write about this, um, is the time in the United States when we started to recognize and take seriously the interconnectedness of food and politics and environment and, and, and poverty and, and health and, and this kind of intersection of, of food in our society. And and so just as the world was, or at least in the United States, was starting to take this seriously, uh, is when I started to express an interest in it. And so I started doing some stuff on the side uh, for the then food editor in New York. And within, I want to say a year or two, um, 
I was doing food stories all the time. And at the time, they really didn't know what to do with me because uh, yeah, I was kind of, I, I always said I was like kind of the Fox Mulder in the basement of, of the AP because nobody really quite knew what to make of me or to do with me. And so, because our food department at the time was recipe only, there was no news, there was no, it was a very kind of, I hate to say it was a little outdated at the time. Yeah. And so they attached me to the health and sciences division where I did a lot of nutrition and health reporting uh, on food. And, and I did that for a couple of years. And then eventually the AP kind of created a whole new division, the lifestyles division, which was food and travel and entertainment and, and all that. And they slotted me into there uh, where I was able to continue doing some of the health and nutrition stuff, but also the celebrity stuff, the food stuff, the cooking stuff, um, policy stuff, uh, trends, and and you know, real news items, and and it just kind of opened it up. And uh, I did that until uh, my predecessor at AP uh, retired, and then I took over as the editor, and I was the editor for, gosh, a decade maybe. Yeah, something, something somewhere along those lines. And it really set you up for what you're doing now, I'm sure. Yeah. And I, it's funny. I knew Chris uh, for years because of my job and at AP and I had interviewed him multiple times and um, you know, and I um, at the time uh, the AP was going through a lot of changes in, you know, budgeting because as all news organizations are struggling and, you know, AP was no different at the time. And, you know, Chris uh, called me up and he said, I'm, starting something new and you know I'm, I'm leaving the old companies i'm starting something new global perspective so on and so forth and he said i'm looking for somebody to run it with me and i said well okay i'm actually kind of happy at ap but i'll come down and talk to you and so we had lunch and and he explained his vision and his mission for the company and i said it, it sounds amazing I, I said but i have to be honest with you i don't know that i'm your guy I said, all I know how to do is run a newsroom. And yes, I write about food, but I'm a news guy. And I said, if, if you hire me, I'm going to run this like a newsroom. We're going to play by the same rules, the same ethics. And, and we're not going to talk about food around the world. We're going to put boots on the ground because that's how you report on this stuff. And so you, you better be prepared to spend some money because nice. you know, we're not going to write about food in Korea without going to Korea. And, and, you know, everywhere else. And, and so he said, no, that's, that's exactly what I want. And, and I said, all right, well, then maybe we can talk. And, and then here I am. Uh, I left AP and, and I guess it was 2016, I guess. And, mm -hmm. and, and I've been with Milk Street ever since. I so. love it when things like this just happen, right? It's like right, the right. moment in your life that, you know, you can, you are maybe ready to leave or you were like, maybe I'm right. not ready to leave, but this opportunity has come in front of me and I, I just can't, I can't say no. Exactly. Your vision sounds like aligned with his vision or his vision aligned with your vision. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I mean, the world is both vast and small. Mm -hmm. And one of the most wonderful lenses through which to view it and the people in it is food. I mean, it's so, it's so intimate. I agree. And it's so communal at mm -hmm. the same time. And, and it's it's rich in history and politics and and culture and 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 caring and that it was 
so exciting. The idea of, yeah, we're going to, we're going to tell the stories of the world's food mm -hmm. and the people behind it. And, and we're going to take it seriously. We, we are going to take the entire world seriously because everybody has something to contribute to this story. And, and so that's the other thing I said to Chris, you know, we have to go everywhere. Like this is not Western Europe. There is some Western Europe, but we're going everywhere mm -hmm. and, and we are going to cover the world. And he, you know, he and I never disagreed about any of that. So that, that made it an easy, easy decision. Yeah. Well, and what I love too, and I think I, I read this on Milk Street from Chris, um, you know, food does bring us all together, right? It's that one mm -hmm. thing that um, really, truly we have in common, you know, whether it's if you can't find it or if you have a hard time getting it, it's still something that, that brings us together as people. Right. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an act of such intimacy. I mean, I am always, always shocked and, and thrilled and honored that when I go around the world, people just let me in their houses because they want to share right. what they know about their food. Right. I find because, and, and I know this sounds awful, but it's so true. If somebody knocked on my door and said, Hey, I don't know you, but I'd like to come in and watch you make lunch and have you tell me your story. I don't think I would let them in. <laughs> Pack sand, buddy. Like, get out of here. Kidding? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but around the world, I am always amazed by the willingness of people to let me into their lives and just share what they know and what's important to them. I, I you know, I, I was just in Hungary, like I said, and um, this elderly couple brought me into their home and and we were cooking with paprika and she was showing me her photo albums of her parents from when they were kids and they lived in this village of you know just a couple hundred people and and you know I was I was one of the ingredients I was really focused on on this trip was paprika I was hungry right. and and the guy brought out a shell casing from a world war ii like foot or too tall and like, you know, six inches away. And he had converted it into a mortar and pestle. And he's pounding paprika oh. in this old World War One shell. And which presumably the casing was found in the, you know, in the field or something. Right. Anyway, you know, these people that, that they welcome you into their lives mm -hmm. and share what's so intimate and special to them. She was telling me about this recipe that her mother used to make when she was a girl. And, and it sounded amazing. And we were at the end of the evening. And I said to her, um, could I come back tomorrow? And could you teach me that recipe that your mother used to make? Because that sounds amazing. I'd never heard of it. And my interpreter, you know, who's Hungarian, had never heard of it. And so it's this, you know, really old recipe. And of course, she, she said, yes, of course, come back. And so I got to go back and learn her mother's recipe, you know, for pasta and potatoes with paprika. And it was amazing. Man. So all of it is to say, I'm just always shocked and in, in such a wonderful way that people are so willing to share. Um, I'm not sure I, how I would feel if somebody knocked on my door. <laughs> right. But it is a place, um, it's such a place of vulnerability too, right? When you're, mm -hmm. when you're cooking something and you share it with someone. And I always think about my grandma um, because again, in mm -hmm. South Carolina, she would make a lot. And if anybody walked in <laughs> as we were eating dinner, it was sit down, make yourself a plate without hesitation. Mm -hmm. I mean, just every yeah. single time. But there's there's something very vulnerable about cooking for someone and sharing like that mother's mm -hmm. recipe with you. Yeah. And it's so open to criticism, right? She yep. doesn't know what you're going to say about it if you hate it. Right. 
Exactly. It's just, it's a, but, but when you do that and you share it with someone and it's just like, oh my gosh, this is the, this is the most amazing recipe. Thank you so much for teaching it. I mean, you probably made her, made her month. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I feel, I feel like it's going to be a story she'll tell for a while, you know, that the crazy American who came and insisted on learning her mother's recipe or something. It's, uh, but you know, it's, 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 it's such a willingness to share of herself and, you know, all these people. And, and I just, I'm, I'm so grateful for that because it allows us to do what we do. And I know you also got back just recently from Thailand too. Yes. You've been everywhere. Like you've been everywhere. I I have, I have, I think I'm up to like 55 countries at this point. Is there any, Um, is there any one culture that sticks out to you? um, You know, talking about that willingness to share, to invite you in. Is there any culture that sticks out to you that at the top of your list of just like these people are always consistently welcoming? Boy, it's hard to beat Italy on that. But I'll say that, you know, I have almost never, very few times have I ever gone anywhere and people have not been willing to share. Amazing. That is, it's one of the, I've, I've decided it's one of these universal truths about people everywhere is that when you are asking them something even as intimate as her mother's recipe but when you're talking about something so important to them Mm -hmm. and something frankly safe to them as food and people open up and and very rarely have i encountered people who are not willing to do that and uh but that said Italy is just, I mean, it's, it's baked into the culture, (laughs) you know, sit down and eat. And, and, and it's really, it's such a part of the culture, sit down, we're going to have some wine, we're going to have some pasta, we're going to eat and, and you're going to enjoy it. And that's it. You know, there's no arguing with it. And, and I, I love Italy. Oh gosh, I love Italy. I mean, I try to get there at least once or twice a year. Okay, well, it's always been on my list, but you just solidified that. Anybody who says come uh, eat, come eat pasta and drink wine with me, I'm in. Exactly, exactly. Oh, and the wines are so good, and the cheeses. Oh my god, the cheeses! Damn, I stop. always bring cheese. Stop. Back. <laughs> stop. Oh, that sounds amazing. Do you have a favorite spot in Italy? Uh, you know, I. I went to, um, uh, where was I? It was, um, why am I blanking on this? Oh, Parma, excuse me, Mm. uh, where, of course, Parmigiano is from. And uh, I had never been there before. And I immediately fell in love with this city. It's very pedestrian friendly. Like most of the streets are pedestrian only. Tons of cool, funky shops and cafes. And I I've, I was only there for probably 48 hours and I desperately want to go back. And I mean, to just to give you a taste of the type of place there is there, there was right around the corner from the Airbnb I was at, there was a record slash wine shop. And it was a converted house. So it was like all these rooms, one after another. It was kind of like a maze. And it was music and wine. And the Brilliant. owner would just come in, you know, you would come in and he'd say, what do you feel like listening to? And what do you want to drink? And, and I mean, it was just, I could have spent hours and hours there. It was so cool. There's um, and, and that was the vibe. Amazing. There's a tasting room here. And one of the wines there is called Sound and Vision. And on the tasting notes with every wine, they will list mm-hmm. the song 
that you should listen to. I love it. When you drink I wine. love that. So I love that. That's that winemaker, he would probably love that little shop in Parma. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Milk Street editorial director. What does that mean? Are you the head honcho? Are you the, are you in charge? Chris is the head honcho. Um, <laughs> Chris is the head honcho. Uh, but I oversee our magazine, uh, okay. which comes out six times a year. I oversee our, our cookbooks. Um, I, Chris and I are the ones who do the bulk of the travel and uh, which feeds our television show. It feeds our magazine. It feeds right. our cookbooks. Um, I would say about... Two thirds of our content comes exclusively from our travel. Um, you know, if, if I had you know endless time and energy, it would probably be hundred percent. But you know, just can't can't be on the road hundred percent of the time. I get it. And as much fun as that would be, and so, and that you know, the same content also feeds our cooking school and uh, to a lesser extent our radio show. Mm-hmm. And um, but so I'm kind of at the the. the kind of the, the center of all of that. And, and so, you know, I have a great team uh, who, who make sure I'm able to get away and keep the, the train running uh, while I'm, you know, gallivanting around the globe. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's, it's definitely a, a team effort and could not do it without them. But uh, that's kind of what I do. And you're running it like a newsroom. Right? Yes. Okay. Yep. We, you know, we don't, we don't take free trips, you know, um, we don't, you know, we pay for everything we do. Mm-hmm. We pay people we work with. Um, and, and we, we treat it like news and it's, we're going to interview people. We're going to learn and we're going to report what we learn. And and it's as simple as that. We don't, we don't make stuff up. We don't take anything for free. We don't, um, you know, we don't mess around. We, we're, we are, we always call ourselves students, you know, uh, no matter how much I think I know about Italian food, uh, I don't, you know, and that's why I go to Italy to learn from the home cooks and the professional cooks who know this so much more intimately than we do and who can teach me. And we treat it that way every country we go to. Right. Well, that's, I mean, to me, that is journalism. We were talking about this earlier. Right. It's one thing. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can write on something, but reporting to me means getting the information from a person and I'm just like, yep. I'm just the channel, right? I'm just the, exactly. I'm taking everything in and I'm putting it over here for you to digest. But yeah, right. I mean, but that is journalism. Yes, exactly. We're, we're, we are the eyes and ears because you, you know, most people can't do this, but you can see it and hear it and hopefully right. taste it through us, right? you know, and, and we're, we're on the ground so that you can have a sense of that. And that's what I love about the cookbooks, um, getting right into that because some of these recipes, like let's just say Thai food, for instance, incredibly Mm -hmm. intimidating to me because I'm not familiar with all of the spices, but looking at the recipes in a milk streak cookbook, they're very, um, authentic because Mm -hmm. you've been there. Yes. And you know, one of the things we try very hard to do, so we, we fully understand, uh, we try to be as, um, as respectful as we can to the origin of a recipe. Sure. Uh, but we also also completely understand that the ingredients they have in Bangkok aren't necessarily going to be ingredients that the average home cook in America can get. No. You know, and True. it's just either it's a quality issue or it's just a different different uh, different ingredient that we just can't as readily get here. And one of the things I always try to do 
on my trips is to ask them how to solve the problem because I don't want to be, you know, the, the, frankly, the middle-aged white guy who comes along and, you know, fixes your, your cuisine, you know, for the home cook in America. That's not my job. And my job though is to ask you, well, if you couldn't get this ingredient, what would you do? And, you know, and actually, I mean, I was just, I was blown away by, um, uh, I was one of the dishes I was researching in Bangkok was pad thai, mm. and you know traditional recipes uh, call for dried shrimp as, as a kind of key right. flavoring ingredient, and it's not something that is readily available unless you go to a specialty Asian market in the U.S. and And so I was a little concerned, like, hmm, how are we going to fix for this? And and I was hoping that you know a solution would present itself, and and actually it did. And what was really fascinating is you know, so pad thai was kind of a manufactured recipe from roughly, I think it was the early 40s. And it was to boost Thai nationalism. And and so, but there were very similar dishes that had existed prior to that. And one of those similar dishes used to use, instead of dried shrimp, it used to use uh, a combination of oyster sauce and soy sauce, which are okay. two very common ingredients in right. the US. And, and when I asked about that, because uh, I saw at this one restaurant, the cook wasn't using dried shrimp, she was using uh, these two sauces. And I said, well, what are you, what are you doing? And, and she said, oh, well, Originally, before pad thai became pad thai, we used to use these instead of dried shrimp. And she said, but when the push for Thai nationalism came along and we were trying to like codify pad thai as a national dish, those are Chinese ingredients. So we stopped using those and we started using dried shrimp, which is a more traditional Thai ingredient. And it was like, that's brilliant. And it solved our problem. <laughs> you know, we can take the dish back to its roots in a way to solve for an ingredient issue here in the United States. I love it when people can do that for me. That's to me, that's the right way to do it. And that's the most respectful way to do it. Respectful, but it's also you're really getting it from the expert. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I don't not, want to make stuff up, you know, <laughs> and, and not coming back and going, I think we can use this instead. Let's just let's just use that. Yeah. No, I love that. Right. Exactly. Um, I do want to, um, talk about cocktail archeology span because I mean, this is, again, you are, you are obsessed with, with cocktails, but, um, but really to the history of, of spirits and, Mm -hmm. and, and all of these things, um, this was something is, was this kind of like, um, like a side project for Milk Street? Like, yeah, you know, it happened, gosh, let me see that my, my, my Shake Strain Done book came out the fall of the first fall of the pandemic. That was what, 2019? It's a blur. 20? I don't know. It's It's all blurring. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was 20. Anyway, so, um, you know, and and I hadn't planned on writing a cocktail book. Uh, I had written a couple of cookbooks uh, when I was younger and, and I was kind of done. It's, it's a, and as you know, it's, it's, it's a brutal process to do, do these things. And, and so, but I loved making cocktails. I loved playing around with it. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll just collect like 25 recipes and, and I'll just print them up in, in a, you know, I'll take some photos and I'll print it up and I'll give it as gifts at the holidays or something like that. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, yeah. Uh, okay. So how long did that last? Right? <laughs> right. And so, you know, very soon I, I had a contract for the book and, and so I did that. And again, the book, I wrapped up writing the book pretty much as the pandemic began. And and then as the pandemic began, you know, Milk Street had to shift and we had to change a lot of how we 
like every company had to you know change what we do and how we do it and and so one of the things we started doing um, was what we call Milk Street at Home videos. And, and a couple of us would do these cooking videos from home, you know, for our social media um, to kind of, you know, keep the conversation going in a fresh totally. way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I started doing cocktails now and again, and they started to, you know, take on a life of their own. And soon that's what I was doing as my Milk Street at Home things. And, and you know, one thing led to another. And so now I'm, I'm the cocktail guy. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't really the plan, but, you know. Yeah. Um, and, the, and I love the history of them. And, and I really, for my new book, the one that comes out in October, uh, Pour Me Another, it was, it was really a fun exploration of the history of these cocktails. And, and the whole, the core of the book is that people think they understand a liquor. So gin, for example, and they think, ah, you know, I'm not really a gin and tonic drinker. Okay, that's fine. But each liquor can actually present itself in radically different ways, depending on how it's mixed and what it's mixed with and so forth. And so you might not be a gin and tonic drinker, but are you an old fashioned drinker? Because if so, you're going to like a gin uh, bijou. And which I believe, if I remember correctly, has like sweet vermouth in it and some chartreuse and a couple other things. Mm. And it's, you know, it's really delicious and it's rich and it's nothing like a gin and tonic. And so when I realized this, that each liquor can present itself in wildly different ways, I realized that actually the average home drinker doesn't really understand the kind of the pathways that you can take in exploring drinks. They think, ah, I'm really not a rum drinker. Well, maybe. But maybe also just haven't had it the right way in a way that aligns with things that you do like. And so to to pull all that together, I dug deep into the history of a lot of these cocktails to their origins, because, of course, they evolve over time. And so I bought all these manuscripts of all these old cocktail books dating back to like mid 1800s and, you know, finding like the original recipes for things that we think we know now Mm -hmm. and kind of simplifying and pairing them back. And it was a lot of fun to explore. So I call it a a choose your own adventure take on uh, cocktails. So, you know, if you if you like a margarita, then you should try this. And if you like this, then you should try this. And you kind of gives you the opportunity to explore things that you might not otherwise realize are related. Well, and that's what I love about wine also, because as humans, Mm. we've been drinking for a long time. (laughs) Long time, right? Helped us, you know, on on the ships back in the day, helping us uh, get through rocky times. So it's it's definitely historical, which is what I appreciate about it. Yeah. And that's a lot of fun to, to dig yeah. into that and, and to see what people were doing back then. And, you know, and then, of course, there were the dark days of, of prohibition in the U- U.S. where so all the cocktails were designed. Yes, they were designed to cover up the rot gut that people were drinking out of the bathtub, basically. <laughs> and and so those cocktails were a particular challenge to fix uh, for the modern era. But <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff that was that was happening. People we're doing some really smart cocktails and and it's fun to kind of bring them into uh, the modern era in a way that I think the typical home mixologist could handle. Mm-hmm. Um, I will ask you later in my final three about kind of the drink, but what's your favorite? Like what's kind of like your go-to? Oh, that's easy. That's a Vukure. Are you familiar with this? No. It's 
Oh, it's so it's from the new from New Orleans. I want to say in the 30s is when it dates back to. And it is uh, one ounce each of rye, sweet vermouth and cognac, plus three quarters of an ounce of Benedictine, which is a very herbal liqueur. Right. And and then a dash each of Angostura bitters and Peychaud's bitters. And you stir it with ice and you strain it into a coupe. Perfect drink for your new coupes. Yeah. And absolutely fantastic it's it's i mean it's a potent drink it's almost four ounces of alcohol but i like them strong and oh god that's a good one Mm, that is that's probably my daily sipper yeah nice (laughs) yeah my rule with cocktails is that i just i don't want anything that i can like finish in two gulps because it's like right sweet or it just goes down too easily i i want it to um challenge me Mm-hmm. Exactly. I want to think about it, and mm-hmm. and 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 I want to notice that it's in the glass, you know. Yeah, and, I want to taste it, and that's yeah. what I love about, especially like whiskey drinks that maybe mm-hmm. you know you have like a big rock because by the time you're drinking it, that first sip and the last sip, completely different, and every sip in the middle, totally different. Exactly, and that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that your drink evolves in the glass. It does you know, from the first sip to the last sip. And, and it really does change over time. And, and I am a big whiskey drinker. I, I, in fact, I have on the counter right now, I made a, this bartender in Budapest a couple of weeks ago, showed me how he makes a simple syrup infused with paprika. Ooh. And then he used that. Yeah. And then he used that to make a rye old fashioned with chocolate bitters so chocolate bitters and paprika simple syrup with rye it was amazing so i made the syrup this morning i can't wait to cocktail hour now (laughs) fun are you gonna are you gonna do something with that are you gonna do a video on that if it's Mm -hmm. good or okay i if it's good yeah i i don't know if i got the proportions quite right for the way he made the simple syrup i'm gonna find out tonight but uh it's cooling now on the counter i can't wait (laughs) fantastic yeah i'm um i love a good Boulevardier, just one of my kind of mm-hmm. classic oh, yeah. go-to. And then I love, um, you know, those creative bartenders who are taking their own spins on like the classic yes. Boulevardier and adding different things to it. Super fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and there's so many ways to play. And I tell you, one of my favorite things when I travel is to go to the bar. And frankly, I prefer to go alone. And I get annoyed when people want to come with me <laughs> because I prefer, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I prefer to sit at the bar and I always want to sit at the bar and I just want to geek out and interrogate the bartender because they're doing such cool stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the same way. No, I'm good. You stay here. I'm going to go to yeah. the bar. I always want to sit at the bar because I not only love, especially I love watching the bartender just work their yep. magic, but then also if they're using something in my drink that I've never seen or never heard of, I'm like, exactly. Hey, what was that? What was that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I want to learn. I mean, that's the fun of going. I mean, of course, the drink is nice too. But I, you know, I want to, I want to yeah. see what's happening. Well, yeah, that's our that's a lot of fun. That's our journalism nerdy side, just like yes, coming exactly. out full strength at the bar. <laughs> Sorry, bartenders, we yep. can't help it. It's just in our blood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I I do want to wrap up just a little bit and get to the final three. But I was reading about you, and one thing. Um, I think this was at, you wrote something for the university that you attended. You remember this? Oh, Edinburgh. Okay. It was last year, uh, I believe. Vaguely. Okay. You okay. wrote it last year. Um, one thing you said, it's it, it was under alumni wisdom. 
You said, I would have okay. done more and cared less. Mm, yeah, that's chirp. That is chirp. I think when I, it, this is one of the reasons it was so good for me to go overseas and push myself past my boundaries. Right. You know, like everybody, I think at that age, I was always worried about what people think about me and, you know, and, and worried about how I'm, how I'm presenting, how I'm coming off to people. And, you know, as you know, when you get older, you realize mm, they didn't care about me. I shouldn't care about them. No. And really, I should have just done anything I wanted, whatever I wanted. As long as you're treating people with respect and you're being safe-ish, yeah. you know, do it, be it, own it, be who you are. And, and I think I would have, I would have pushed myself even, even harder. To, to try more things and and uh, and to just kind of explore myself and the world a little bit more at a younger age. I mean, you get there eventually. But, it's good. No, know. that's good wisdom for sure. Um, and I think caring, again, as long as you're a nice human, but like- Exactly, just, yeah, exactly. Caring a little bit less. Yeah, right. You know, if they think I'm silly, who cares? You yeah. know, I'm sure most people think I'm stupid and silly, so that's okay. I think you know, you're pretty fantastic, <laughs> honestly. I think you're pretty great. Um, and and also along with that, I, I read that the pandemic really did slow you down as far as um, travel goes, which um, you said was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I'm a homebody. I mean, which sounds stupid because I, I literally travel the world yeah. and 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 I've you know I've been on multiple continents in the last month alone. Uh, but um, really, when I'm not traveling. <laughs> I like to be home <laughs> and, you know, yeah. And, and, and yeah, you know, and, and, you know, when, when the pandemic hit, uh, we were very lucky, you know, and a lot of people cannot, we're not nearly as lucky as we were. We, we were lucky that both of our jobs were quite safe and, and we were able to do our jobs without risk to ourselves or our families. And, and so we kind of hunkered down and did home projects and, and just kind of, you know, nested for a while. Yeah. And I got to say, it was a bit of a reset. It was kind of, in that sense, it was, you know, it was kind of refreshing. But uh, we, like I say, we were very lucky to be able to do that. People think I'm crazy, but I kind of miss that, like, the April at the start of the pandemic, mm. April, because everything was so quiet. And we were mm -hmm. checking in on each other. I was reaching out to more yeah. people. Um, I was spending more time at home. I I don't miss it, but I miss it. I miss that kind of just that yeah. feeling of like home is so safe. And I don't know. Yeah. But I know what, I know what you mean. It was I, reset. It was. And, and there was a, I think also because it hit during the winter. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and in, at least up here, you know, and, and it was, it was kind of, sounds, sounds crazy, but it was a coziness to it. Totally. You know? That's exactly what I'm talking about. It was cozy. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and so we, we redid our TV room and hunkered down into it. And, you know, I mean, what else are you going to do? You can't go out, you can't go out, you know, can't do anything. And, and so it was there. I do kind of miss that coziness. Um, and that, that was, that was, a, it was a weird, but kind of strangely nice feeling. And then again, we are privileged to have had that experience of it, but, uh, but it was, it was a good one to have. If you're going to have to go through a pandemic, that was, that was the way to do it. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And cocktails. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, on your on your IG account, you do canned reviews. Can, like, is that is that your yeah, hubs? Is that your hubs in the video with you? That's that's my husband. Yes, and and we we do it just for fun every once in a while. They're great. Usually, probably after we've had too many cocktails. Yes, and and <laughs> we we 
we have and actually we have an embarrassing number of canned cocktails in our wine closet. So uh, one of our other pandemic projects is re we redid a closet off the dining room as our wine and liquor closet. And, I love you guys. And, you sound and, so, it's like oh. so much fun. <laughs> oh my God. We were, we were well stocked, well provisioned <laughs> for the pandemic. Um, yeah, we, uh, every time I go to the liquor store, I see these crazy canned cocktails. You know, most of them I know are going to be horrible. Um, and although I've, we have tasted a few that were okay, but, um, you know, I can't resist buying them. Yeah. And, and so we have just this stack of them. And we haven't actually done a video in a while, but they are so much fun to do because we just get a little tipsy. And, and of course, we usually do it in one or two you know, two or three takes because the first one we're a little stilted and trying to get comfortable, but of course we're drinking the whole time. Right. And so by the time we actually get a take that's good, we're probably a little too tipsy. It shouldn't be recording anything, but that's after fun. Uh, there's, <laughs> um, I do, I do cooking, like some cooking videos on Instagram occasionally, and I'm drinking wine, of course, while I'm doing yep. it. So like the third take, I've probably had, you know, like a glass <laughs> of wine and then I'll watch these yep. sometimes back towards the end of the video. And I'm just like, Oh no, I can't believe I said yep. that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's fun though. That's fun. That's super fun. Yeah. And what a good sport that he he pops on there with you. Oh, he's willing to do it. Yeah, it's fun. Um you know, it's funny you say drinking drinking wine through the cooking uh, thing. I I did a video, I don't remember what it was. I did some video for Milk Street and and I had a glass of wine and you know, and I'm drinking it as I go. And of course, it's it's highly edited uh, at the end. And people were commenting about how in this one minute long video, the wine glass, you know, the wine disappears very quickly. <laughs> and then it goes back up and then it goes down. So I'd obviously refilled it. And then kind of funny. <laughs> uh, people, they're like not paying attention to you whatsoever. They're just like, yeah, exactly. Look at this wine glass. Look at this wine glass. Look at here. And then now look at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. All right, sir. We're going to wrap up and get to the final three. Uh, best advice okay. you've ever been given. Mm. Don't stop changing. Ooh. And never be afraid of that. I mean, I, I have to say I've had many occasions in my life to wipe the slate clean. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. It's intimidating. Um, it's also the best thing you can do. Is, is to embrace change and and to embrace just starting fresh and starting new. And it's it's terrifying, but boy, it gives you a whole new perspective on life. Did someone give you that advice? Yeah, yeah. A, a friend of mine said, just, you know, if, if you stagnate, what are you doing? You know, just just embrace it, just, just lean in and and embrace the change because it's the only way you're going to grow and not all the change is going to be pretty or smooth or mm -hmm. not even beneficial sometimes but uh and and the path won't won't necessarily you know go the way you expect yeah but um i i have to say i i took that seriously and 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 that's probably been a guiding principle in my life for the last 20 or so years fantastic yeah it's 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 yeah my mom used to tell me that's the only thing we can depend on is change. Mm -hmm. And so that idea that never stop changing, that, that means you're always um, evolving. You're always navigating, right? Yeah. But it is exactly. scary. It yeah. is really scary. 
but you know, the thing is, we're going to have to do it whether we like it or not, True. whether we embrace it or not. As, you, as your mother said, change yeah. is the only thing we know is going to come. Yeah. And, and if we dig our heels in, you know, I remember, it was, it was, I don't know, it was this silly little story. I remember reading uh, probably in the first grade or something about, you know, the big tree and that holds, you know, stands up against the wind and then the, the little, little yeah. wispy thing that blows. And of course, it's the tree that falls down, you know, and it's true. You know, you have to be flexible and you have to kind of embrace that. And I oh. think when you do, that's when you realize and you see all these opportunities that you never knew were there. And Yeah, I was interviewing yeah. so many people during the pandemic all over the place because I kept up with the podcast and my old job in TV news. Mm-hmm. And then I had I did have the decision after 19 years to leave this incredibly comfortable, consistent yep. job to do yep. stuff that I wanted to do. I don't think I've ever been more scared in my life. Yeah. So. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, yeah, I know that's, you know, I left AP after 19 and a half years or something like that. And, and it was the same thing that I, and I, because I don't like to do anything, you know, (gasps) gently, you know, I was getting divorced. I was changing my job. I was, you know, I, I was, I was wiping the slate clean yeah and and it was terrifying but no regrets well and look at you now right you can look back and you can say that was that was brutal but the only way to get through something is just to get through it exactly you just got to go through it and and learn hopefully learn beautiful and and, and look for opportunities we got so deep right now what happened to the cocktail love it um okay what's your happy place hmm the lake um you so live on a lake, i have a cottage right? i don't live it i i have a cottage on a lake okay. it's about a half an hour from my home and uh on the dock with a cocktail uh or there is if you take a kayak out and you go through the marsh that nobody even knows you can get through it and you you go through the marsh you know tall grass above your head the whole way all of a sudden it opens up into this pool, this shaded pool. And my husband and I will go out there in kayaks and we will bring some wine and <laughs> some books and some anchors. And we anchor our kayaks and we sit there and we read in this completely isolated pool that nobody even knows is there, completely quiet, just wildlife, water and shade. And it's beautiful that's what i like to do all summer that sounds ridiculous are you kidding me <laughs> that it sounds really absolutely know. amazing i love that it love really that. is yeah um okay in all things food and drink and you kind of answered the drink but what do you crave what always sounds good to you <sighs> two things my mother's spanakopita Mm. which is feta and, and spinach pie. Yep. It's Greek. We're not Greek. We have no idea why my mother started making it. <laughs> no idea. She doesn't remember. We just started making it. And we, because I grew up mostly vegetarian, uh, that was our Thanksgiving main course. Aww. And we would serve Spanakopita with mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce and stuffing. And I mean, it did not go together. Brilliant. But yeah, it, it was amazing. And I we only make it once a year just for Thanksgiving. Aww. And but I could eat that any day, every day. I absolutely love it. The other thing, and I haven't had one of these in years, but I don't let myself 
habit because once I start, I don't think I could stop. But really cheap, spongy white bread. Yeah. A massive slice of fresh tomato. And really, really, really extra, super duper sharp cheddar. Ooh. And a little bit of mayonnaise. And that was like the, the sandwich of my childhood. And I love that. Wow. Okay. Okay. I yes. have this picture right back here. It is a deconstructed okay. tomato sandwich. Oh, I love it. Because uh, it's hard to beat a tomato sandwich. In the South, I mean, fresh garden tomatoes, though, do not buy the crap that's in the grocery store in January. It's not going to work. White bread, mayonnaise, tomatoes, salt and pepper. Yes. Yep. That's all you need to be happy. But you add sharp cheddar. Love. The drier, the harder, the sharper, the better. And then a lot of mayonnaise. A lot of a lot, mayonnaise. A lot. I love mayonnaise. Yes, I love mayonnaise. Same. <laughs> I, I love I love Hellman's. I love I make I make aioli. I make mayo. I just oh, yeah. I love yep. mayo. I'm one of those kids mm-hmm. that I just I love mayonnaise. Oh, yeah. I I can eat it by the spoonful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. French fries, French fries and mayo is like oh, my favorite. Yes. Yep. Okay, yep. really quickly, really quickly. Um, Spanakopita, did she like do store-bought phyllo? Yes. Okay. Yeah. She didn't make the phyllo herself. Because I mean, she would she would buy that. And it phyllo's kind of a pain in the ass. Oh yeah. Oh no, it's horrible to make. I mean, I wouldn't try that in a million years. <laughs> I mean, to to roll anything paper thin, no way. I don't bake anyway. Um, <laughs> but you know. You just buy it and oh, and you know, and over the years, the recipe has evolved because uh, my mother is still vegan. And mm. so now we don't use spinach anymore. We use kale and my mother makes the tofu cheeses. And I'll say, you know what? It, it's actually, she's nailed it. It's really good. good for her. So now we actually eat vegan spanakopita as our Thanksgiving main. I love it. <laughs> it's a little crazy. But, no, yeah. that's not crazy. I like it. Um, and then I heard, <laughs> I heard a bell was. Is do you have a doggy that's like shaking? A kitty cat? I heard like something. No. Oh no no no! That's my ex-wife texting me. Oh. <laughs> and I had I I forgot that it's I forgot that I have my iPad gets my notifications as well. So I turned my phone off. <laughs> I'm like, oh, does he have a dog? Oh <laughs> uh, no, two cats, two cats. Aww. We are crazy cat people. Yeah, and we have a flat-eared freak a scottish fold and and we have uh, an orange kind of mutt and they are of course the loves of our lives of course of course mine yeah. is um sleeping on her bed right now which is my uh-huh. bed <laughs> of course she likes to think <laughs> she she lets me think it's my bed it's really her bed of course yeah just share it um you've been fabulous and fun and um, I would encourage everybody to follow you on Instagram because um, you're not only entertaining, but you're teaching all of us something about cocktails, which I love. So thank you. I try. I try. Sometimes I just drink too much, but that's okay too. <laughs> it's okay. You're in good company, sir. You're in good company. Um, again, thank you so much, uh, J.M. Hirsch, oh, editorial director of Milk Street Magazine and so much more. Again, give him a follow on Instagram and uh, just check out all the fun things he's doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I had such a blast. Thank you. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. 
You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More and Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.